Yesterday, we reported that many African Americans lack access to basic comfort care at the end of life, hospice and palliative services that can ease pain and suffering during the dying process. The obstacles are even greater for Asians, Latinos, and other ethnic minorities. Language barriers and cultural traditions can inhibit awareness of end-of-life options, and they're often compounded by poverty and lack of education. As KLW's Joanne Marr reports, the barriers faced by immigrants of color can have devastating consequences. Can everybody hear? Okay. Terry Daniel is a grief counselor meeting with a group of Chinese seniors at a San Francisco housing community. She's here to learn about their customs and traditions relating to the end of life. And so we're going to talk about death here, and I hope that's okay with everybody. The women share stories about visits to cemeteries and setting up altars for their ancestors. They've spent a lot of time and thought honoring their deceased relatives, but not much time making plans for their own deaths. So I would ask how many of you have told your children or social workers or whoever what you wish for your end of life. Only six people out of 25 raised their hands. The Senior Center has held many workshops on preparing for the end of life and completing advanced directives, a legal document that specifies their wishes and preferences for medical treatment. But very few of the residents have followed through, and most have not had conversations with their children. She said, my children actually even more fearful than us. Yes, and then she started yes. laughing. That is true. That is because for the children, they are afraid of the pain of loss. Studies show that fewer ethnic minorities use hospice services compared to whites. That means they have less access to the comfort care and pain management hospice can provide to help ease the discomfort and suffering that often accompanies dying. So making sure that we talk with people and prepare people in advance for these serious illness, that's what we're trying to promote nationwide. Dr. Alex Smith is among the many concerned palliative care specialists in the Bay Area seeking to improve care at the end of life. More importantly is understanding what the goals and the values are. What type of life is worth living? What kind of trade-offs are they willing to make in order to have that type of life? What are they afraid of? And what kind of quality of life is acceptable to them, right? Those are the kind of conversations that are very important and help family members prepare for that in-the-moment decision-making. Death is not something we really talked about until it happened, you know, and I guess it's kind of hard to talk about these things. Luis Hernandez is a graduate student at the University of California at Berkeley. His mother died suddenly of liver cancer a few years ago, just when the semester had started. She had pains for quite some time. She was very hesitant to go to the doctors. My mom was always very scared of doctors and never wanting to go. No matter how many times me and my brother like told her, go, like you need to go, it's important to go. Like, she's like, I'm scared they'll find something. I'm like, well, that's the point of doctors. But she waited too long. By the time she finally saw the doctor, she was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. After emergency surgery, she got sicker and later died in the hospital. 
Because events moved so quickly, there was no time for Hernandez and his brother to talk with their mother and discuss hospice or alternatives to the aggressive medical interventions she received. That conversation should have taken place long ago. I mean, you know, we're not rich white people, right? So, like, we're living in the projects of Brooklyn, New York. It's not easy to plan that. And even on the weekends, too, she's working. She's taking care of the house. She's maintaining everything. Like, you know, it's it, where, where do you find time to plan all that out? Poverty is just one of many potential challenges. Nearly two dozen law enforcement agents surrounded this suburban Texas home early Wednesday morning. Inside, 62 undocumented immigrants. For those without legal status, Dr. Smith says fear of deportation can lead to delays in seeking medical help or planning for the end of life. I'm seriously concerned that the overall direction our country has taken, building the border wall, forced separation of families, will have consequences, and in particular at the end of life when people are seriously ill and need support from others because it takes very little to prevent accessing services, you know, until it's too late, until you're really suffering, until you're dying, until you're hospitalized in the intensive care unit. Cultural beliefs, values, and religion can also be barriers to good end-of-life care. In many Asian and Latino cultures, openly discussing death is taboo. The Chinese consider it bad luck. I would say in my family that's very true. We never talk about death. We don't talk about anyone being sick. We don't, we don't mention it at all. Julie Tai's family comes from Vietnam. Her father's side of the family is ethnic Chinese. Both of her parents came to the U.S. after the war but the rest of the family remained in Vietnam. In our own family, we don't talk about death in definitive terms, or um, we don't talk about it at all because we just love our family members so much that we talk about them as though they're still alive. Tai's family in Vietnam did not have any conversations with their 85-year-old grandfather as he was nearing death. Instead, Tai's aunt and her daughter were his medical proxies. I think everyone just assumed that they would be in charge of his care, that they would do what they felt was right for him, but it was never talked about. And that's why his needs were not met at the end of life. In many Asian and Latino cultures, this is the traditional way. End-of-life decisions are made by family members without including the person who's ill. Dr. Smith says he's seen it many times. Family may want to shield their loved one, and I've dealt with this clinically. You know, don't tell mother that she has cancer. Smith has done extensive research on racial and ethnic disparities in end-of-life care. It's going to make her depressed. She's going to dwell on it. She can't handle it psychologically. But what we have to do and our responsibility as providers is talk to the loved one to see what their preference is, the person who's living with the serious illness. But in the case of Ty's grandfather, his doctors never spoke directly with him. On the telephone, he told Ty and her mother he wanted a natural death and did not want to be resuscitated. Smith says family members often demand that everything be done to keep the patient alive. Loyalty and respect. This is honoring your obligation to your parents to keep them alive as long as possible. 
That can include invasive surgery, chemotherapy, and other aggressive and unpleasant life-sustaining treatments. Some people may say, look, uh, I don't want to have this aggressive treatment toward the end of my life. And I know my son will demand it. And I respect that. That's his role. And, and you should respect that, too. When Ty's grandfather was taken to the hospital for the last time, her aunt asked the hospital to do everything to keep him alive. But Ty says this caused him great pain and discomfort. He was very upset. He was crying. He was pulling the IVs out. He was kind of spitting up the food. He just didn't want anything that they were giving him. He was caused more pain um, by them imposing these heroic measures on him as opposed to just letting him go, which is what he would have wanted. Despite the attempts to save his life, Ty's grandfather went into cardiac arrest, and he died 24 hours later. Trained medical professionals and social workers can make a critical difference in reaching out to ethnic patients and helping them prepare for the end of life. Professional translators are needed to overcome cultural and language barriers and help facilitate conversations. But educational outreach and good communication also require special training in cultural humility, an awareness of the patient's values and traditions, and a willingness to listen closely to the patient. You have to let the family lead instead of us coming in and saying, well, we know all about this. We'll, we'll be right over. We'll tell you what to do. <laughs> Karen McCabe is a social worker with Hospice of Santa Cruz County. She assists dying Latino patients and their families. She says that many Latinos mistakenly equate hospice with an asylum for the mentally ill or places that hasten death. McCabe sits down with a family and describes how hospice can help them. I often just sort of explain that we're going to be bringing nurses into your home and we're going to be sending the medicines to your house and we need somebody from your family to be in charge of care. We're going to teach them what to do and um, we're going to sort of set up your house like this hospital and do the best we can at your house. One place that can help frail low-income elders is Unlock Senior Health Services. The majority of Unlock seniors are low-income Chinese and Latinos living in three Bay Area counties. Its comprehensive services include home visits and clinical care, meal deliveries, transportation, and adult daycare. Dr. Alana Spall is a primary care physician at Unlock in San Francisco. Spall says conversing with participants can often be challenging, especially if cultural norms prohibit patient autonomy and discussing death. Even though it's taboo, and I, I usually say I'm your doctor and this is my job and I need to know what you want or what you don't want. And I also bring up if we don't discuss this now, it'll put their family in a harder place later on. And that often helps because they see their family, you know, struggling to make a decision in the future and they don't want to be a burden. And so I, I remind them that actually telling their preferences to me is a gift that they are giving their family members. Thanks to the efforts of Spall and other staff members, almost all of Unlock's participants have completed advanced directives. Unlock currently serves over 1,500 frail elders 
and at the end of life, provides seniors with comfort care similar to hospice. Since its founding in 1971, Onlock's innovative program has been replicated in 30 states. The goal is helping seniors age in place and live independent, active lives until the end. Julie Tai spent time at Onlock for a student research project, and she was impressed with its results. Following the death of her grandfather, she graduated from medical school. She's now a doctor specializing in geriatrics and is trained to help seniors plan for the end of their lives. I think I really just wanted to be a champion for the vulnerable population because I think about my grandfather and how much he meant to me. I think that made me want to care for older people even more. Ty is hoping her parents will make their own plans for the end of life. She's asking her mother how she wants to die. Yeah, she's pretty comfortable talking about it. She goes, she goes, just let me go. <laughs> By having open, honest conversations, Ty hopes to honor her parents' and her patients' wishes. In particular, she wants to reach out to patients bound by culture who can't talk openly about death. Efforts like Ty's could have a big impact someday on reducing racial disparities in end-of-life care. For Cross Currents, I'm Joanne Marr. Joanne's two-part report was produced for the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism's 2018 California Fellowship. You can hear the first part of the series at KALW.org. And that's where you can hear all our stories and subscribe to the Cross Currents podcast to listen whenever and wherever you want.